Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week. Thank you again for joining us on the program. If you are tuning in for the first time and you're seeing us for the first time, it is because we have changed the time slot when we were airing and uh, we may be finding a brand new audience. To you, I, I say we have been in a series for the last probably 50 weeks or better studying the book of Romans, and I believe you would be blessed by this entire study, but you are coming uh, onto it at the end of it. Uh, the good news is we have archived everything that we air clear back to when we first went on on our YouTube channel so that you can go back and watch them uh, on demand at your leisure. There is also an audio portion on our podcast, and there's an RSS feed also for your Android device of the audio portions of this so that you can listen to it on your way to work or study it or what have you. We may use some of these in a future time uh, for classes in a Bible school because they are such, to me, vital studies. And we have been unpacking the book of Romans, like I said, for the last 50 uh, programs or better. And what, we, what we've done is we've shown that the first part of Romans is the diagnosis of the human condition. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are dealing with the fact that he concludes all under sin so that the end of the law is there's none righteous, no, not even one, and that you need a Savior, and that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then he starts to give the remedy for that conclusion or for that diagnosis. He starts bringing the deliverance to it by talking about in chapter 4, Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. And he begins to shift from just diagnosing the problem and pointing out the problem to showing you that the transition is faith and faith alone puts us in right standing with God because Abraham was justified by faith without the works of the law and without circumcision is what Paul was making very clear. Five in, uh, of Romans talks about how he is including not just Jews, but Gentiles and goes clear back to Adam. One man did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, and another man did it right and got us out of it. But more than just get us out of trouble, he got us into a life. And so the next several chapters is the deliverance from the diagnosis. And then we have dealt with the last from about chapter 12 on is the dispensing. How does this look? How does grace play out? What does this new covenant look like? And we talked about especially last week how uh, you know, don't judge people about what they eat or drink or uh, what they, you know, uh, new moons or Sabbaths. And, and we talked about the judgment seat of Christ last week. And the judgment seat of Christ is not the place where you get condemned. It's the place where you receive reward. It is from the word bima, the Greek word bima, which was the place where the victor of a certain race would win either the gold, the bronze or whatever, silver. It was places of rewards. And he starts talking about how you treat each other, and he was talking about the blending of both the Jew and the Gentile, because as both of them are coming into the community of faith, there's such a cultural class, or clash, I'm sorry. I think some of these principles, not, not some of them, all of them, 
as Paul called that the perfect law of liberty, ought to come into play even in our day where there's a lot of clashes between the races, is that we learn how to culturally blend with each other and not hate each other, but celebrate each other's culture and what one may esteem to be, uh, you know, like Paul was talking about, if one man eats meat and another man doesn't, uh, neither one of them are wrong. If one man eats uh, or keeps the Sabbath and another man doesn't, neither one of them are wrong. But he does go into saying, but don't let the eating of meat or what you drink or what you wear become an intentional offense to somebody else. In other words, I've seen people who got what they call free under grace, and they flaunted it to the point where it was almost here in your face, look at my liberty. <clears throat> now, let me tell you, that's not liberty. What that is, is almost arrogance and saying, you know, in your face, and it's almost intentionally being offensive, and it turns people off that may have been even, uh, you know, interested in your message. Because one of the key things that most people think whenever they hear the gospel of grace, oh, these guys are just teaching you, you can sin and do anything you want. That's not what the gospel is teaching. What the gospel is teaching is that, especially in the chapter prior, the one I'm trying to get to today is it's teaching, let's see, in the 14th chapter, it's teaching you how to walk in love and not be offensive to one another. I've seen people who had freedoms in certain areas that were almost like uh, uh, peer pressuring others who would be offended by that. And then Paul, in the latter part of 14, said, but if uh, whatever's not of faith is sin. So if you, can, if you get someone to violate their conscience and what they believe is wrong and they violate their faith, then what you've done is you've made a weak brother fall and you should not make people violate their faith. Now, however, the other side of that is it's like, uh, you know, growing up. I think at some point, like I said, growing up, <coughs> let me say this, it was a sin for, uh, for, for, to wear shorts, men or women. It was a sin for women to wear uh, slacks. And we got in big debates and fights over it. And man, I mean, we were so judgmental that if you wore something like that, we just thought, well, look at that sinner right there. And then we came to the place where we realized, wait a minute, this is not an issue at all. God does God is not, He's not that big of a fashion buff. And I think that you should dress in modest apparel and what's decent and in order. That's just common sense. That's not Christian or non-Christian, but walking in love so as not to be offensive to, to other people. But at some point, I think we had to, we were, you know, uh, we, we were not trying to, not trying to offend people, but at some point you've got to just stop and say, yes, I'm just not going to walk in bondage my whole life just because you're weak in faith. And so some of the ladies begin to wear slacks and some of the men begin to wear shorts. And in other words, we started to just walk in some of the freedom without trying to be intentionally offensive, trying to walk in love. And as you can see over the years, for the most part, people have come to the place where they're not judgmental about those things. I remember when it was a big fight over, do we sing songs uh, 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 that, that were scriptural songs on the overhead projectors? And when we first started moving away from just the hymnal, we almost had church splits because people would prophesy that there was a handwriting on the wall because we were using the overhead projectors. And I look back at that now and say, those were things that we had to walk through that were somewhat offensive in coming to certain places of liberty. So we're in a real transition period, I believe now, finding out what is godly 
what is not godly, what offends people and what doesn't offend people. And the rule he's using here is there is a perfect law of liberty. If you walk in love, you're not going to steal from your neighbor. You're not going to take his wife. You're not going to kill him. If you walk in love, you're going to honor your father and your mother. You're, you're, you're going to, in other words, walking in love was the whole issue of what God was after, even under the law. And while that covenant is no longer in effect, the heart of it was, I'm going to write my laws on your heart, on your minds, and your sins and iniquities. I will remember no more. In other words, once we realize how much we've been forgiven, if we forgive now, as Paul said, even as God, for Christ's sake, has already forgiven us. And so my forgiveness and my walking in grace and giving grace to others. See, sometimes we want grace for ourselves, but we don't want to give it to others. And sometimes it gets messy giving people grace where they can learn how to be led by the Spirit. And when the Spirit begins to operate in them, it will bring the conviction in their hearts to what ought to go and what ought to stay. So we're going to move into the 15th chapter, and we're going to talk about, again, how we need to care for one another because this is the outworking or the dispensing of the gospel. So it goes, it goes on to say, I'm going to read it from the Message Bible. It said, those of us who are strong and, a, and able in the faith need to step in and lend a hand to those who falter and not just do what is most convenient for us. And the King James says we need to bear one another's burdens. Strength is for service, not for status. Each one of us needs to look after the good of the people around us, asking ourselves, how can I help? That's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't make it easy for himself by avoiding people's troubles, but waited right in and helped out. I took on the troubles of the troubled, is the way the Scripture puts it. Even it was written in Scripture long ago. You can... Be sure it is written for us. God wants the combination of His steady, constant calling and warm personal counsel in Scripture to come to characterize us, keeping us alert for whatever He will do next. May our dependability, may our dependability, may our dependably steady and warmly personal God develop maturity in you so that you get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with all of us. Then we'll be a choir, not our voices only, but our very lives singing in harmony in a stunning anthem to the God and Father of our Master Jesus. So reach out and welcome one another to God's glory. Jesus did it, now you do it. Jesus, staying true to God's purpose, reached out in a, in a special way to the Jewish insiders so that the old ancestral promises would come true for them. As a result... The non-Jewish outsiders have been able to experience mercy and to show appreciation to God. Just think of all the scriptures that will come uh, true in what we do. For instance, then I'll join outsiders in a hymn sing. I'll sing to your name. And this one, outsiders and insiders rejoice together. And again, people of all nations celebrate God. All collars and races give hearty praise. And Isaiah's words, there's the root out of our ancestor Jesse breaking through the earth and growing tree, tree tall, tall enough for everyone to see and take hope. Oh, may the God of green hope fill you up with joy, fill you up with peace, so that your believing lives, filled with the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit, will brim over with hope. Personally, I've been completely satisfied 
with who you are and what you are doing. You seem to be well motivated and well instructed, quite capable of guiding and advising one another. So my dear friends, don't take my rather bold and blunt language as criticism. It's not criticism. I'm simply underlining how very much I need your help in carrying out this highly focused assignment God gave me. This priestly and gospel work of serving the spiritual needs of the non-Jewish outsiders so they can be presented as an acceptable offering to God made holy and holy by God's Holy Spirit. Looking back over what has been accomplished and what I have observed, I must say I am most pleased in the context of Jesus. I'd even say proud, but only that context. I have no interest in giving you a chatty account of my adventures, only the wondrously powerful and transformingly present words and deeds of Christ in me that triggered a believing response among the outsiders. In such ways, I have trailblazed a preaching of the message of Jesus all the way from Jerusalem far northwestern into Greece. This has all been pioneer work, bringing the message only into those places where Jesus was not yet known and worshipped. My text has been, those who were never told of Him, they'll see Him. Those who've never heard of Him, they'll get the message. And that's why it has taken me so long to finally get around to coming to you. But now that there is no more pioneering work to be done in these parts, since I have looked forward to seeing you for many years, I'm planning my visit. I'm headed for Spain and expect to stop by on the way to enjoy a good visit with you and eventually have you send me off with God's blessing. First, though, I'm going to Jerusalem and deliver a relief offering to the followers of Jesus there. The Greeks all the way from the Macedonians into the north of the Achaeans in the south decided they wanted to take up a collection for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. They were happy to do this, but it was also their duty, seeing that they got in on all the spiritual gifts that flowed out of Jerusalem community. So generously, it is only right that they do what they can to relieve their poverty. As soon as I've done this personally, handed over this fruit basket, I am off to Spain with a stopover with you in Rome. My hope is that my visit with you is going to be one of Christ's more extravagant blessings. I have one request, dear friends. Pray for me strenuously with and for me to God the Father through the power of our Master Jesus Christ, through the love of the Spirit, that I will be delivered from the lion's den of unbelievers in Judea. I pray also that my relief offering to the Jerusalem believers will be accepted in the Spirit in which it was given. Then, God willing, I'll be on my way to you with a light and eager heart, looking forward to being refreshed by your company. God's peace be with you all. Oh, yes. Now, let me just say that what he's simply saying here is that there is this outworking of uh, an expression, and he's talking about just caring about each other. You know, I think something that's been lost even in our American culture is being simply a good neighbor. To me, these are some practical, very practical. He's talking about the communication of the gospel and how he had gone even into places where the gospel was never heard of before, among Gentiles, which was never, ever experienced before, and how they were made partakers of the covenants of promise and how he was asking them to pray for him for help along this priestly journey. I think that anybody that's been a scholar of the Scripture knows that God's original intention was always to include other nations, Gentiles and outsiders, so to speak, in the covenants of promise. And His 
purpose was to raise up a nation out of Israel, a chosen generation, that literally as a priesthood, that would be the light to the Gentiles. And if you go back and look at the purpose of what God had called them for, was to be a city set on a hill, a light of the world, the salt of the earth, that they would literally be able to bring uh, all the world into a relationship with the one and tr- the one true and only God. But because Israel failed to do that, God in the new covenant has raised up a whole new the church to fulfill the assignment that Israel as a nation did not fulfill. Now, let me say that the church as a branch of being in Christ, who is the true vine, is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, that in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He was hinting clear back then at the mystery which was hid from ages, which was Christ in and among all of you, the hope of glory. So, uh, you know, the original intention was God wanted to make a whole nation of priests out of Israel. And when God brought them up out of Egypt, I could see him almost excited. And he's saying, I'm going to be to them a God. They're going to be to me a people. I'm going to make a nation of priests. They're going to be a light to the Gentiles. I'm going to, uh, they'll they'll be be literally a nation of priests. But the moment God came down on the mountain and His glory sat down on that mountain like a burning furnace and like the smoke of a great furnace, the Scripture says, and the cloud of glory descended, the people said to Moses, so terrible is the sight. We're afraid of Him. You go talk to Him. And whatever He says to you, we will do it. And if we do it, it will be our righteousness. That's the wrong answer. And the people forfeited a personal relationship with God for a mediator system. And God said, if you don't want to come up the mountain, the backstory is in Deuteronomy 5, if you want to read it. God said, I heard you in your tents. And He hearkened to their voices and said, if you don't want to come up the mountain and have personal relationship, then send Aaron and his sons up the mountain. And they'll be, to for the people God word and to God, They'll be the representative back to the people. And then they forfeited a personal relationship with God for a mediator system. And when you don't have a personal relationship, you have to have rules. And the less relationship you have, the more rules you have to have. And hence, the law of Moses was given, and then laws were added until there was 600 and some of them, and every aspect of daily life was literally legislated by laws and by rules. But God did not bring them out of Egypt on the basis of the Mosaic Covenant. He brought them out on the basis of the Abrahamic Covenant, which only required faith. Now, when we come into the New Covenant, the Scripture says the law was added because of a transgression. I submit to you the possibility that one of the transgressions was at the foot of Mount Sinai where they said, you go talk to him, and they forfeited that personal relationship. And then they made golden calves and said, here's the gods that brought us up out of Egypt. And because they did that, they forfeited that Abrahamic covenant for the Mosaic covenant. And then that covenant was added because of the transgression. Until, that's a time word, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and that seed was Christ. And when Christ came on the scene, 
He was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise and the fulfillment even of the promise to Israel because he uses this terminology when he calls Israel out of Egypt. He said, Israel is my firstborn, and out of Egypt have I called my son. He uses that same text in the Gospel of Matthew, I think around chapter 3, when he tells Mary and her and, and Joseph, take the young child and, flew, and, and flee into Egypt until the death of Herod, because he seeks to kill the child. It's almost a repeat of the Egyptians trying to kill all the male children, because another exodus is afoot. And so Jesus goes down into Egypt, and this is what it says in Matthew uh, chapter 3, so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Israel is my firstborn, and out of Egypt have I called my son. Jesus was the true Israel of God, is the true Israel of God, and is the firstborn, and out of Egypt he has called his son, so that if you are in Christ, you are not preaching replacement theology, you are preaching placement theology because He was always the seed to whom the promise was made. And because you are in Christ, you are the Israel of God. And if you are not the Israel of God, you have no right nor claim to the new covenant because he's, He tells us, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will write my law in their hearts and on their minds. I will write them and their sins and iniquities. I will remember no more. But because you are in Christ in the new covenant, now God is saying, I'm going to write my law in your heart. In other words, this is a heart thing. What we dealt with in the prior chapter of how we uh, treat each other is dealing with a heart issue, bearing one another's burdens, helping each other out. It's a heart issue, doing what we do because love has now become the perfect law of liberty, and that we're flowing from that love is how the outworking of this covenant is manifest in everyday lives, is that, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God. He that loveth not does not know God, for God is love. And so we start to walk, This, you know, these are such basic concepts, but seemingly so hard for people to grasp sometimes. But the reality of it is, he's simply talking about the practical way that even the Gentiles were reached, that Paul said, this was my priestly assignment, as you prayed for me that this thing would be fulfilled. And even Peter got a hold of that when he wrote in his epistle and said, for you are a chosen generation, and you are a royal priesthood. As the community of faith, as a people who are in Christ, our job as a nation of priests now is to serve bread and wine. That's the communion elements. That's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we are to serve to humanity is He was crucified, died, buried, quick, and raised, and seated. And all of that He did not for Himself. He did it for us. He had us in mind. That's what we serve to humanity, is that His death was your death. You are welcome into the covenants of promise. You are welcome into His presence. And the service that Paul was doing, and how he was treating those that were around him, and bearing one another's burdens, and caring for each other, became the expression that really compelled the Gentiles to be interested to come into the covenants of promise. It was not him saying, turn 
or burn. It was a demonstration of something that was breaking down even ethnic barriers and walls where they at one time had considered the Gentiles to be dogs and outsiders and strangers from the covenants of promise. Now Paul has gone in to minister to them and tell them they've been accepted in the beloved that the mystery that was hid from ages, even the scriptures that we use concerning predestination. Predestination is those scriptures in the context of their usage is not who God predetermined to go to heaven and who he predetermined predetermined to go to hell. Those scriptures are the fact that he had predetermined and predestined that the Gentiles would be included in the covenants of promise because whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. And Paul is talking in those contexts of the inclusion of the Gentiles and the mystery that had been hid from ages is to bring into one body, into one seed, and the seed that the original promise was made to in Abraham was Christ. And Christ is that body that we are a part of. And so as a result of that love being expressed to the Gentiles, Paul has become a missionary and shared the gospel where Jesus had never been heard of before. And what was incredible was now these Gentiles have taken up an offering and they're about to send it to the struggling uh, uh, believers in Jerusalem the so-called insiders, and Paul is praying that they receive it in the spirit in which it was given, and that's the spirit of love because we ought to bear one another's burdens. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed that whenever there's any kind of catastrophe anywhere on our planet, some of these legalists will get on TV and say, boy, this is the judgment of God. This is an act of God, and God is mad at this group and mad at that group. To me, those catastrophes are not an act of God. God did not send the hurricane to New Orleans. God does not send earthquakes to Hades, or to uh, Haiti, I'm sorry. But if you want to see what an act of God is, an act of God is when the first boots are on the ground, are Christians who are there to feed, help clean up, supply the need to those who are broken, housing, food, and that hands on some of the probably most effective things that the church has done is be able to sow into people when they are broken, and that becomes an expression of love that becomes attractive to the world. I think that our problem is the church has become more famous for what we're against than what we're for, and that's why we've been deemed non-essential. But when you become essential to your community and you are supplying to those who have been in substance abuse or recovering alcoholics or addicts or people who are hungry and homeless and you begin to minister to them, you are manifesting the outflow of what this gospel is about. And I think that's the practical outworking of it. Well, we're about to run out of time. Next week, we're going to summarize and conclude this. But thank you for joining us. If you'd like to sow a seed into the ministry, we do need your help. And the easiest way to do that is simply to go to that website, lynnhiles.com, or scan the QR code that's on the screen. It'll take you directly to a link where you can give via credit card or debit card through our PayPal portal that is secure. You can also set up a monthly debit if you would like to become a monthly partner, or you can give a one-time gift. You can also write a check or money order to Lynn House Ministries and send it to the address that's on the screen, or you can pick up the telephone and call the number that's on the screen. Someone will take your call. If you don't get an answer, please leave a message, and someone from my team will return your call. But do it today. God bless you.
I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.